The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Most beautiful and also healing mind states that we can have. And as we've done in the previous uh, day-long retreats on equanimity and loving-kindness, in the training to cultivate compassion, we pay close attention to the body, and we also explore how we might develop compassion through wisdom and insight, and then through the heart. So, body, mind, and heart. Compassion does call forth in us wisdom. And at the same time, wisdom and discernment have a key role to play in how we cultivate compassion. So uh, don't be surprised, but compassion practice can be quite difficult. And as we all know, there are certain types of suffering that are really hard to stay with and not get into aversion or, or guilt. And so this is when the practice really needs wisdom. And just as we do when we cultivate equanimity, we also need wisdom and discernment to see our reactivity before we get caught in it. And then rather than giving in to our tendency to be reactive, instead we begin to cultivate our ability to hold our seat in the midst of change, in the midst of suffering. And as our wisdom grows, so does our compassion. To me, this is quite wonderful that compassion actually arises naturally when wisdom is developed. And you may have heard me say this before, but a a key to cultivating wisdom is to deeply understand the three characteristics of existence. Unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and not-self. The Buddha teaches us that all conditioned phenomena, (coughs) all of our experience, is fundamentally unsatisfactory because everything that arises is going to pass away. And ultimately, we are going to be separated from everything that we love. And if we really understand this in, in our gut, then we're in a much better position to be with our own pain, the pain of a loved one, or the pain of society. In my own path, one of the things that's been really transformational was when I understood that there was nothing wrong with my life. Even though uh, the pain and the loss that I felt at times were beyond words. And there was nothing wrong because this is part of the human condition. I had a difficult childhood. It included many years of physical abuse. And I felt wounded and bitter and that that shouldn't have happened. But then finally I realized that my parents did the very best they could. And it's just the way it was. They were dealing with their causes and conditions to the best of their ability, and now I was doing the same with mine. 
It's the truth of dukkha, that our life includes suffering and unsatisfactoriness. And as we know, it's not unusual. And it's actually the way it is for everyone. The next element of wisdom that we call upon is the insight into impermanence. And as we see more and more deeply that all phenomena, all of our experience, arises, passes away, this insight increasingly helps us to become more accepting of the way things are, to be able to see our grief or the grief of our loved ones or anyone that we come into contact with. This too is worthy of our mindfulness. So the heart of compassion is a heart of courage. It allows us to be open and present for our own suffering and for the suffering of others. So our practice is just gently asking ourselves, can I open my heart to this moment? The resistance to suffering is what creates that sense of loneliness and separation. And you know and I know that we can't fix it all. But what we can do is to learn to stay present with our suffering and to do this with warmth and even love. So we're cultivating the motivation to stay connected, remembering that just for this moment, is it possible to open my mind, to open my heart? So, to embody compassion, we need to be able to actually be with our pain, be with the pain of our loved ones and everyone's pain. But obviously, to be with it, we can't be rejecting it. And if we think there's something wrong with our situation, or if we think there's something wrong with one of the most beautiful people we know coming down with a cruel and devastating terminal illness or losing a child, then we can't actually get close to it. Perhaps you've heard that in English the etymology of compassion means suffering with. We encounter suffering and we don't turn away. But in order not to turn away, we have to have a deep acceptance of things as they are. It was, a, it was a really big watershed for me when I finally stopped railing against the injustice of it all. I'm not saying there's not injustice. Uh, there certainly is, especially in our society, but there's, no, no, there's nobody, at least nobody I know, who's responsible for justice in this world or in our lives. It's kind of like one of those imponderable questions that the Buddha refuses to answer. The trouble is, if I get caught in the idea that what happened to me or what happened to my loved ones was unjust, then I just keep spinning with the pain of it all. If, on the other hand, I see that these horrible things simply happened, that no one will ever know all the causes and conditions or why it happened, then what is asked of me is to step up and to embrace the pain. 
And it's in no way complacency. What's required is that we open our hearts to the present moment, no matter what the present moment is offering. And opening our hearts to the present moment doesn't mean that we condone it. It just means that we see it clearly without overlaying our projections of it shouldn't be this way. When we see that it's just the way things are, this is a game changer. It's a game changer because we're willing to be with reality just the way it is. We don't require and we don't expect reality to make us happy all the time. Sometimes reality is painful. Sometimes it's phenomenally painful. And what happens when we drop the idea that somehow it's unjust to have all this suffering or that it shouldn't be that way, that's when magic can occur. Can you guess what I'm thinking of as, as magic? What I'm calling magic is when we can really open to our situation or to the situation of others, just as it is. Not overlaying our preconceived ideas. But being willing to suffer with, being willing to open our hearts. We can't open the heart to suffering when we're tied up, railing against the injustice of it all. We can't open the heart if we think there's something wrong with what life is offering us. And we can't open the heart when we think that this time the pain is just too much. So we retreat, perhaps we escape, or we wall ourselves off. And the watershed happens when we give up our aversion, our wanting to turn away, and instead we open up. We finally stop struggling against the way things are. And I think Perhaps the most amazing thing that I learned in my early days of retreat practice in this tradition is that the heart is actually big enough. Who would have thunk it? I spent a lifetime imagining that this pain was really more than I could bear and I had to do something, anything, to get rid of it. But when in the context of a meditation retreat I dove into my sorrow instead of turning away, I was absolutely dumbfounded to see that, in fact, the heart is big enough. So what can we do in our, what we do in our practice is that we create the conditions in which we can dare to be with things just the way they are. Not grasping for more of what's pleasant, not turning away from what's unpleasant. And we do this by cultivating two things. Samatha, which is concentration and calm, and vipassana, the insight that arises from being fully present. So that's our business today. To be present in the body, be present in the mind, be present in the heart. And as we do this more and more, we learn to send down roots into our actual experience, rather than getting caught by our reactivity and drawn away from our experience. So as you meditate today, see if you can offer your body and your mind 
an opportunity to be just a bit more concentrated. And the simplest way to do this is just to stay mindful of the breath and whatever comes along with the breath in each moment. And if your concentration deepens, you'll naturally experience a greater degree of calm. And this calm, being settled in the present moment, starts to give us a kind of spaciousness which makes room for the heart to open. And if we have trouble opening to our experience, then the question becomes, well, what's holding us back? Why turn away? What would happen if we dared to let go? And what could possibly be worth sacrificing our open heart? One of the koans that's been most helpful to me over the years has been exploring how to greet each moment as a friend. Even when we're in the face of something unimaginably painful, how then do we greet whatever's coming up as a friend? Does this moment have something to teach me? That's what friends do. They teach us when we need teaching. Another thing that's very helpful in cultivating compassion is having a sense of trust. Trusting that our path is taking us where we need to go. Trusting that our heart is actually big enough. Letting go of that voice that says, I'm such a wimp. And seeing the warrior within us. Entertaining the idea that perhaps the courage we need is already within us and we can access it when we need it. The state of compassion is sometimes called the quivering of the heart when it comes in contact with suffering. But sometimes our tendency when confronted with suffering is to want to push it away. Somehow, long ago, we learned to shut down But pushing our experience away means that we're crusting over that soft spot in our heart that knows that we're all connected and that knows that we need that connection. So compassion practice is learning to see and to be with our own suffering and the suffering of other beings. But compassion does have its near and far enemies. (coughs) The near Compassion, the near enemy of compassion, as some of you know, is pity. So with pity, there's a sense of difference. I'm feeling sorry for you. But in true compassion, there isn't this sense of difference at all. The far enemy, the opposite quality of compassion, is cruelty. Striking out against suffering, not wanting to be near it. And in cultivating compassion, inevitably, we will meet the near and far enemies. This is very natural. It's just like when we cultivate generosity, we're bound to meet our stinginess and our holding on. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his Christmas Sermon on Peace says this. It really boils down to this that all life is interrelated. 
We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all. Did you ever stop to think that you can't leave for your job in the morning without being dependent upon most of the world? You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and reach over for the sponge and that's handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for a bar of soap and that's given to you at the hands of a Frenchman. Then you go into your kitchen and drink your coffee for the morning and that's poured into your cup by a South American. And maybe you want tea. That's poured into your cup by a Chinese. Or maybe you desire to have cocoa for breakfast. And that's poured into your cup by a West African. And then you reach over for your toast. And that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. And before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you've depended on more than half of the world. This is the way our universe is structured. It is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. So thank you, Dr. King, for that. And we suffer from lack of self-love and we suffer from lack of loving other people. And what we need is this softness that recognizes that we can't eat breakfast without half the world. And living from that kind of soft heart of non-separation, it does touch us. There's kindness around our hearts. And somehow we know that we need this sense of connection and we need it much more than we need our shell of fear or loneliness or anger which keeps us separated. As is the case for many practices, it's useful to begin by setting our intention. So one thing that you can do is to make a conscious wish for yourself to live with kindness. We can vow to greet our experience, whatever it is, with an open heart. And the most powerful tool we have in the cultivation of any of the Brahma Viharas, the Buddhist teachings on love, is mindfulness. And this includes being mindful when compassion is absent, when the heart is closed, or when we're indifferent to someone's suffering, or even if we wish someone harm. So what we're doing here is to train our minds and hearts to be less defensive and more open. But the reality is that sometimes our hearts aren't open. And sometimes we have real difficulty with our practice. So if at some point today you're having a hard time, instead of going into aversion against the practice or against the people around you or against whatever, just say, yes, it's difficult sometimes. You're dealing with dukkha. So when it gets tough, the invitation is, let me just relax and not any, add any more pain to the pain that's already here. And when we do this, then we're back to karuna, to compassion. So I'd like to end 
by reading to you a passage from Upasika Ki Nanayan, a Thai laywoman teacher. She says, the Buddha compared the training of the mind to holding a bird in your hand. The mind is like a tiny bird and the question is how to hold the bird so that it doesn't fly away. If you hold it too tightly, it will die in your hand. If you hold it too loosely, the tiny bird will slip out through your fingers. So, how are you going to hold it so that it doesn't die and doesn't get away? The same holds true with our training of the mind in a way that's not too tense and not too lax, but always just right. So if, as you practice today, you find the mind distracted or agitated, hold your mind with the same compassion and care with which you'd hold a small bird. Thank you for your attention. And uh, we have some time for questions or comments. Um, I do have a question. Wait, just a second. like this. Um, my question is apropos what you just said. Um, I've had some uh, recent um, instances in my life uh, where people um, have been harmful. And um, on one case, it's just a person in our social circle who is notoriously aggressive when she doesn't get what she wants and lashes out. Uh, <laughs> and in some sense, does not, that does not affect me so much. Um, but in other instances, um, the harmful behavior, this is not just words, um, have been attempts to subtract me of certain rights Mm. Um, as a tenant and so on and so forth and there's been also something deceitful this is not just a different point of view you know what I'm saying about mm -hmm. a situation and um, I've made a conscious effort not to, to uh, not to feed uh, a response of dislike an aversion mm -hmm. to two specific people who are involved in this situation. But because uh, they're not quite stopping, it comes up, you know what I mean? I mm -hmm. don't know what they're trying to do. I mean, on some level, I do know what they're trying to do, but um, it's kind of, I'm, you know what I mean? It's like being provoked in some sense. And, um, uh, I really don't believe that they're doing their best. I think they're doing what is most convenient, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, so in a situation like this, yes, I can tell myself it's difficult to feel compassion. Um, but how do, does one work with these repeat until I can get out of their reach, which is going to take a little bit. Yeah. Well, compassion doesn't solve all problems. Right. And not and and uh, it can make you more skillful in dealing with difficult people. 
if mm. you, you, know, you see them as suffering beings, they're obviously suffering if they're doing things that are deceitful. Um, and, you know, maybe there's some skillful way that you can show them the light a little bit. Um, but I think what's called for in a situation like that is, is first of all, wisdom. You know, maybe yeah. you need to make some separation. You don't want to hang out with these people or, oh, or as little as possible. Not. Yes. But when you do have to come into contact with them, I think it's true. If you, if you can come to them without a heart of, with a heart of compassion, which is not condoning what they're doing, but seeing their suffering, you may be able to interact with them in a more skillful way. Frankly, their suffering is very hard to see because these are what psychologically one would call extremely well-defended people. And, uh, you know, it's kind of presumption on my part that they're suffering. Uh, maybe well, they are, maybe they're not. It, well, anybody who's unethical is suffering. Um, they, may not be su they may not be feeling it, but they're certainly yes. creating the conditions yeah. for suffering. Um, it's a little bit of abstract to me what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? Because um, I can feel compassion for the fact that by behaving without st ethical standards, they are eventually harming themselves. Mm. You know and, and maybe others as well. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm the only target of their, you know, it's a certain mm. type of behavior. Um, so in this situation, it's probably you're more in need of wisdom than you are of compassion. You know that you know that about the the, the Buddha's yeah, the bird that flies yeah. with the two wings. So you know, up the wisdom wing yeah. in this case. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Can you take it take it over to this person? Sure. <coughs> Thank you very much. Is this on? Good, good. It doesn't reverberate, so that's great. Um, I'm an, I have an experience um, that causes a, a lot of um, disquiet in me. And um, my daughter-in-law and my grandson, who's six, have a, um, a very difficult relationship. There's a lot of clash of wills. And often when I'm there in their small apartment, there's usually, there can easily be some incident which causes Daniela to raise her voice and get really angry and Rafi to be really obnoxious. And I've been really working on trying to continue to cultivate a sense of peace and calm my tendency is wanting to run away whenever there's, you know, this kind of anger, yeah. volatile anger, and I have a great deal of compassion in in my heart, you know, that um, I think my daughter-in-law has a undigested suffering, and there's, anyway. So my question is, in that moment where I do feel compassion, but the energy level is wanting me to leave the room. If you could suggest anything. Yeah, it's a tough one. Um, 
And especially since you know that if uh, she's yelling at the child, the child is being harmed in some way, you know, and so you want to protect the child as well. Um, I don't know if there would be, and it's especially complicated when it's your own daughter. Um, my daughter-in-law. Or your daughter-in-law, but still, your family. That's worse. So <laughs> that makes it harder. And that might even be more complicated. <laughs> um, so, yeah, find some skillful way to intervene, perhaps, or um, if you can see what's irritating her, uh, you know, what was triggering it, uh, maybe think of some other creative solution and propose that. Uh, it's it's a great thing that you have compassion in your heart for her because that's that will help a lot. Um, yeah, some of these situations are really you know like we don't have all the answers ourselves, and sometimes people have to work out their own karma. You know, we are the heirs of our actions, and sometimes you know when we see someone doing something that's destructive or self-destructive, um, we need to practice equanimity because the person is not receptive to compassion and in that case the prayer is I sit in the center of my love for you knowing that I cannot make your choices for you um, and the other thing is you know as, as Buddhists um, it never works to proselytize <laughs> which most of us know. But it does work to be a Buddha. So if you can, uh, without trying to say what uh, she should be doing, if you could model uh, skillful responses to whatever those irritating situations are, she might be able to learn from that. And certainly uh, the child will, will get a different model of what, what's possible in terms of reactions. You know, our, our kids learn so much more from what we do than what we say. I don't know if that's helpful at all. Um, so earlier you mentioned that... Um, like this, hold it like yeah. Like that? So earlier you mentioned that <clears throat> um, if we think of... Um, there's no no actions that are unjust um, that it would be that would be the first step for cultivating compassion so I'm wondering so when I think of the society as a whole I understand that because everybody's suffering in some sense and um, I, I get that but the problem is when I zoom in to individual um, cases for example um, well you know the, there's the homeless issues um, in this area, and then <clears throat> there are um, various other cases that are very real, for example, the Sanford rape cases. So I'm just wondering, at this point, um, is there any advice that, or like, how do I even think of, oh, you know, in the situation, um, this is not unjust? And, and how to balance that from still being in touch with reality and feeling emotions so that in case I need to step up and do something that I can actually, mm. you know, I still feel like, does it make sense what I... Thank you for that question. Say? I really appreciate it. 
Um, when, when I was giving my talk, I did say that, of course, I don't mean that there's no injustice in the world, uh, because, the, as you said, the Stanford rape case is just a horrendous example of, of injustice. Um, what I was talking about was in my, our own um, reactivity to our lives, our own lives, you know, um, the, f the fact that, you know, we may get a, a terrible disease or, you know, we may get uh, assaulted by somebody. Um, I think it is uh, counterproductive to dwell on the injustice of that situation, that somehow it happened. It happened because of causes and conditions. There may have been, in, you know, injustice, but it's not skillful to just keep playing the tape over and over again about how, how wronged I've been. And what is skillful is to say, to just say, okay, well, that happened. Now what? And, and the, the victim of, in the Stanford rape case, she wrote the most beautiful words, and she did just that. Instead of, instead of um, uh, feeling sorry for herself and being, continuing to be a victim, she rose way above it and, and um, wrote something that is going to make a huge difference for many, many, many people. Does that answer your question at all? I think it does, although I'm still wondering. So I think what you're trying to say is that if things have already happened um, to us, then um, because we cannot change the past, and the only thing that we can really do is to um, just accept that there's no injustice in our lives. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes I wonder what is the balance between um, feeling that for myself and then and then seeing um injustice in the world and and act upon it yeah and and as buddhists i i really think that we have an obligation to respond to injustice in the world i mean it's it's great to meditate and many people believe in the trickle down theory of meditation and there is trickling down that happens you know when when we become more and more buddha like uh, and the way we interact with people changes considerably and, you know, we can bring peace to people, we can bring happiness, you can be nice to the cashier and, and that could make their day. Um, so there's a lot to be said for the, for the trickling down of, of our practice and, and spreading it out. Um, but uh, my personal belief, and this is not canonical, you know, we don't find this in the canon that we should go out and help, you know, help the poor and, uh, you know, be active, uh, try to get the, the judge impeached and off the bench and that sort of thing. But um, there are many wonderful examples of uh, very senior Buddhist teachers who are doing this. Bhikkhu Bodhi, who has translated much of the Pali canon, uh, has founded a huge NGO against world hunger. And he goes out and he demonstrates and he raises funds, he's really engaged. So there's, a, there's great scope for us to find ways of uh, making our compassion real, you know, actually getting out there and doing something. And I, I think it's a wonderful thing. I encourage us all to, to do it. 
And it may, it may just mean, you know, helping your next door neighbor who's uh, handicapped or elderly uh, with your shopping. I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, and the scales can be very different. Um, but it's, I think it's really important to go beyond our own uh, personal lives uh, in our effort to, to cultivate compassion. Thanks so much for your question. And we don't have time anymore. I'm I'm sorry, uh, but we can you can ask it uh, you can ask it later. So now we have a half an hour. It's eleven o'clock. We have a half an hour of walking meditation. So be back here, you know, eleven twenty-nine or so. Uh, most of you uh, know how to do walking meditation, I believe. And anybody who's new to it. Um, Please uh, come up to the front and I'll be happy to give you a few words of instruction. <laughs> 